All right, turn with me to Psalm 90. This is the portion of the Word of God that we're going to be looking at today. This is God's Word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to satisfy us in the morning. Your word talks about how we have so often the dark night of the soul and weeping tarries in the night. But then you promise us that joy comes in the morning. Lord, sometimes uh, we sense that life is is toil and trouble and the terrors of sin uh, encroach and, and, uh, and in a sense, really just terrify us. They They can wear us down. Lord, we need you to establish the work of our hands and help us, Lord, to see that your work is glorious and powerful. Father, this morning as we turn to Psalm 90, we ask for uh, eyes that can see uh, your work in our lives and in your word. We ask you, Lord, for hearts that would believe and be comforted, and Lord, that you would teach us blessed humility. So open our hearts to these precious truths and help us to see Jesus in them. We pray in his name. Amen. In my last pastoral letter, Uh, to you as a congregation, I mentioned that I had to cut short uh, my last unit of psalm sermons because I've simply just run out of time uh, before I move to my next pastoral call. So much to say, so little time. That was my lament. I have to skip a two-part sermon on Psalm 89 
that would have been titled this, Kingdom Exalted, dealing with the glory days of God's kingdom, and then Kingdom Rejected, which is exploring how the good old days were crushed under the old covenant. So please take the time, not now, but maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, to go and read Psalms really 88 and 89, but especially 89, because it provides important historical and emotional context as we move into this next major section, that is book four of the Psalter, and consider Psalm 90 this morning. The main existential question that Psalm 90, as the introductory psalm of book four, seeks to answer is actually found in Psalm 89. At the end of the psalm, it says this, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? That's in verse 49 of Psalm 89. Now, you might be thinking, this is kind of skipping around. Why do we look to the previous psalm to interpret the meaning of Psalm 90? Well, the answer is because of the way that the Psalter is put together. Book 3, which we, uh, in a sense, skated through for a few weeks, is in the middle uh, of the Psalms. It's the middle section of the Psalter. And we talked about this before. It can be called the Book of Exile. Its overarching themes are personal and national devastation. The last two Psalms of Book 3, Psalm 88 and Psalm 89, give voice to the horrific cry of exiles under the judgment of God for their sins. Listen to the final verses of Psalm 89, which is a corporate lament of Israel after being captured by the pagan nation Babylon, looking back to their home that's no longer a home in God's kingdom because it's utterly destroyed. Beginning at verse 46, it reads, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then verse 52 is actually kind of a, a conclusion to the whole book uh, three. It's, it's an appendage, so it's not actually part of the, the psalm proper. The book three ends, I think, you can see at the bottom of the pit of despair. But when all seems lost, God's people literally turn the page and wake up to a brand new day. Psalm 90 is the joyful morning that follows a tear-drenched night. And I'm sure glad we get to start there because in God's providence, we didn't have to go through the dregs of Psalm 89 for week after week. What Psalm 90 teaches us is that the Lord is eternal, but man's days are brief and fragile, filled with toil and trouble and terror of divine wrath against our many sins. But, but... God will return to bless his people by revealing to us his glorious work, redeeming our work, and teaching us to number our days. And so what this psalm is, is it is an exhortation to rejoice in the wisdom of humility. That's what it stands for us here today. And so as we work through it in three points, 
Uh, the first one is profession of secure faith. And we're just going to, again, very simply walk through the psalm from the first verse through the 17th. The second point, lament about human life. And the third, prayer for blessed humility. Profession of secure faith, lament about human life, and prayer for blessed humility. Now, the author of this psalm is Moses, and he's called the man of God here, and that's really important because understanding that Moses is the author and the times that he lived and what he faced during his day is super helpful for us to be able to understand not only the context, the historical context of Psalm 90, but how we can apply it to our lives today. Uh, During his middle 40 years, Moses lived for 120, 40, 40, 40, three chunks of 40. During that middle 40 years, he lived in exile. And in his last 40 years, he lived in exodus en route to the promised land uh, via the wilderness. And you'll remember that he was not able to enter. And all the kids in Sunday school seeing that he can't enter into the promised land on the felt board go, oh, that's not fair. How did that happen? That was so hard. But I want us to see that Moses learned through affliction how to make the Lord his dwelling place. He actually didn't die homeless. Later, Psalm 90 moved from that context of Moses in the, in the wilderness and speaking to the, the Exodus generation was moved to the very beginning of book four in the Psalms. Why is that the case? It's placed there to teach us, who are, in a sense, exiles, about eternal security, ultimate security, where we put our hopes and dreams. You see, when we profess our faith and, and make it secure, we can profess our faith that is in the Lord, not in his kingdom, which is our dwelling place. Because our temptation is to put our hopes in the things of this world, the peoples of this world, to pour our hopes, our trust, our dreams into something that we can see, something that's tangible, whether it's a person, whether it's a place, or a thing. Psalm 90 is teaching us that all of those things are like a dream. They're like sand sifting through the the sieves of time. (sighs) Like a mist, they'll blow away. Like the morning grass, they'll grow up and they'll be gone in in the afternoon. Only the Lord and not his kingdom is our dwelling place. And as we profess that um, the Lord is our dwelling place, we also put our faith in God as everlasting. This is verse 2. Now, why is the Lord our home and our habitation, our refuge and our dwelling place? I tried to get that across a little bit to you kids. It's because he is eternal. That's the answer of verse 2. You see, God exists eternally. He's always been there, and he always will be. The words that we have here is that he's from everlasting to everlasting. The Lord, the Bible is teaching us, and again, this is Christianity 101, but we need to be reminded how it can be applied to our lives and how can it be applied to the way that we put our trust in things in this world. The Lord has always been God, and his everlastingness proves he will always be God. You see, the the, the systematic theologians, when they use their big words for categories, for attributes of God, the eternality and the immutability of God, those are really just the basis for God's faithfulness to us because he doesn't change, nor will he ever, ever change. We can trust him. So what we have here is a reminder, a simple reminder for God's people who are beaten up and torn down and full of doubts and fears that this truth is even though it rarely but should affect us, is that God's work of creation, his his 
birthing the mountains, if you will. That's, that's the language of the, of the passage. Not just bringing forth, but bringing forth as a sense as a mother brings forth her, her, her offspring. Birthing the heavens and the earth. Indeed, the whole universe into being. We read about that in Genesis 1. See, he's the source and the cause of all things. And that's not just a theoretical truth. That's meant for us to be comforted so that we see that God is from everlasting to everlasting so we can trust him and put our faith in him. Because every single thing that ever was or is or ever will be is secure in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is this true? Because God has always, always been there. Now, in a church, you say, yes, so what? I've heard that before. But you walk out the four walls of the church and you run into the snarky atheist who says, oh, yeah? So uh, who invented God? Gotcha. You ever heard that before? If you've been to the Boardwalk Chapel, you've heard that many times. Like, um, this is some profound objection that all the theologians and philosophers and scientists and mathematicians have never considered and never been able to come up with an answer. Oh, you stumped me, you got me. No. It reminds me of a story. Um, You ever heard the one about the Native American who was trying to explain uh, his tribe's creation myth to a rationalist? He says, in the beginning, there was the great spirit. And the great spirit made all things. He made the heavens the earth, the sky. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He made the fish of the sea and the birds that, that fly in the sky and the animals that creep along the ground. And last, he made people, men and women. And then after he had formed the world, he placed it on the back of a cosmic turtle. And the rationalist goes, hmm, I'm trying to comprehend the astrophysical impossibilities of that actually happening. So he asks him, what's holding up the turtle? (laughs) And the Native American says, huh, well, uh, I guess it's another turtle. (laughs) Follow me here. The rationalist says, no, 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 I don't think you understand. Something has to hold up the turtles. And then he says, oh, I get what you're saying. It's turtles all the way down. You're not following me, are you? (laughs) Oh, boy. This is a tough crowd today. We laugh at that, or at least some of us do. (laughs) But what we don't realize is that there's a a truth there that the Native American is trying to get us to see that the rationalist just doesn't understand. And that truth is, is that something has to exist eternity, for eternity, eternally, for anything to exist at all. Okay, Now, how does this work out? Well, science and logic and even your experience agree that this is the case. For example, your security, your hope, your trust must rest on, in my example here, on God all the way down. Because if it doesn't, then when the trials of this life, when the turmoils uh, come into your world and shake, in a sense, your world will fall off the back of the turtle. When all that comes, you'll have a dwelling place that cannot be shaken. And you'll be able to lament without being crushed to bits. That brings us uh, to the second point, lament about human life. And there's uh, three laments here that I find in verses uh, 6 through, uh, what is it, 
um, 6 through 11. The first is that life is oh so brief. It's really, really short. It's so brief from the perspective of eternity. The days and years we see here are, are likened to a dream. You ever wake up and you try to remember the dream that you just had because there was something profound in there, and then 30 seconds later, you just can't remember what it was. I mean, it's just, it's gone. Or you wake up and uh, you had a nightmare, and then you still feel the sense that you're terrified and you're upset, but then you forgot what you're upset about, but you still have that feeling. It's just, it's, it's there and it's gone. The Bible says that's what our, our human life is like. And then it gives us another comparison. Your life is like the new grass in the morning that quickly fades away. Now, those two, those two images, a dream and a morning grass, are impersonal forces um, that don't really sweep people away. Um, withering grass and the passage of time are like a, a gentle dream, a, a gentle passive image. But then we have a different kind of image. The days of our lives, the Bible says, are also likened to a flood. Now, this is not like going down into your basement after you burst a pipe and there's standing water everywhere, and you say, ah, where's the phone number for the insurance agent? Or, quick, get all my valuables three inches up. It's not like that. The image of the flood is of a a wadi, um, a a dry stream bed in in the desert. And you use it kind of like um, a path because it's an easy place to, to walk because there's no brush there, and it, and it blazes a trail through the wilderness. And you're walking there, and you've done it many, many times, and it seems safe, and all of a sudden, one day, you hear a rumble. And you see birds starting to fly over your head that way, the way that you're going. And then you turn around, and there's just rushing water coming at you at 100 miles an hour. And you don't even have time to get out of the path, and it sweeps you away. The flood conveys the irresistibility of death with a picture of God's active involvement, his active involvement, not his passive, in returning man to the dust. So not only is your life brief and fragile, but it's easily destroyed, the Bible says. Now, I found a great quote from John Calvin um, in his commentary on Psalm 90 this week. And um, when you read the folks from the Reformation era, they're pretty hard on each other. You've got to remember, this was an age when, you know, if you, if you said something wrong about the Bible, you might have uh, the heresy police knocking on your door, not to take you away, to lock you in jail, but to take you away and burn you at the stake. So this was like life and death stuff here. And so they, they used language that was colorful because the stakes were so high. Here, John Calvin, he says, and he starts with a question. Whence proceeds the great stupidity of men who bound fast to the present state of existence, proceed in the affairs of life as if they were to live 2,000 years, but because they do not elevate their conceptions above visible objects. You can see this is like Reformation language. He says, each man, when he compares himself to others, flatters himself that he will live to be a great age. In other words, that guy's not going to make it to 40, but yeah, I will. I'll make it to 80. I'll make it to 90. I'm going to live to be 120 because, hey, I want to. That's not John Calvin, that's me. He says, in short, men are so dull as to think that 30 years or even a smaller number are, as it were, an eternity. Kids, 30 years seems like a long time, doesn't it? Until you get to be age 30 and you go, I'm just now starting to feel like I'm an adult. (laughs) I think I have to do adult now. I have to do the adulting thing. And then you get to be 40 and then you're getting upset when people uh, cross you and you say, I'm 40, I'm a man. You've seen the sports quote where the guy does that, right? 
and then you get to 50, and then you finally feel like you've arrived. But then you're starting to think, gosh, i got to start planning for retirement. It all goes by so fast. Or even a smaller number, as it were, as an eternity. Nor are they impressed with the brevity of their life so long as this world keeps possession of their thoughts. In other words, if they think about their, their life and how it's so brief, they distract themselves by going, I'm going to go into my little tent, into my little dwelling place, and I'm going to play with my little toys. I'm going to, to put all my hopes and all my, my attention on my house or my car or my spouse or whatever it is, my, my investment account, my toys, my phone, my TV, all that kind of stuff. And John Calvin's saying, how can we be so dull? The imagination that we have that shall have a long life resembles a profound sleep, he says, in which we are all benumbed until meditation upon the heavenly life swallow up this foolish fancy. <laughs> I really love that. He, he says it in such a way that's poetic, but it also hits us upside the head like a two-by-four. I mean, we need to wake up, right? <laughs> this life is short. Life is brief. You've seen the illustration where you have a huge, huge, long, long, long rope. Okay? It could be 50 feet long, and it represents eternity. Nothing can be an eternally long rope, but you get the idea. And the, the preacher puts a little bit of tape at one end, you know, kind of like he's, he's wrapping the freight end, and he says, that right there represents your life on earth, and the rest represents your whole existence. And he says, we spend so much time worrying and fretting and thinking and planning and scheming and preparing and fighting all about this little part right here. And then we divide it up. We say, okay, this part right here, I'm going to go to school. And this part right here, I'm going to get married and have kids. And this part right here, I'm going to get another job. And this part right here, I'm going to move to Florida, pull up my socks and have a, a fun time playing golf. And this part here, I'm going to watch TV at the very end. And this part here, I'm going to die in my sleep because that's how we all think it's going to go for us. And we worry all about that little inch on the rope when all of eternity awaits us. We need to wake up. Psalm 90 is telling us that we were made for eternity. There's another lament about human life in verses 7 through 9. Life ends in a dreadful groan. Where is it here? Verse 9, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. That's actually not the best translation. It's adequate. But if you look at the word for sigh, it's really a moan or a groan. And it's, in context, it's when our, our life ends. Have you ever been by the side of a dying man or a dying woman? Especially a loved one? And the belabored breathing? <sighs> it stops for a moment, and you think, oh, this is it. And it stops for a long time. This is it. This is, and <gasps> you've seen it. And then the very last one, it's like the air finally goes out of a balloon. Oh. It's awful. Life is brief and death is irresistible because of the curse of sin, the Bible tells us. In other words, the reason why God sweeps man away like a flood is not because of his old age. It's not because this old suit wears out finally, but it's because of sin. It's not just the obvious wrongs we do. It's not just other people's moral failings, like, oh, sin in the world. Oh, I know there's sin because I can see you. <laughs> or his anger against uh, those rotten institutions that sustain ecosystems of injustice. We know that that's out there as well. 
No, God sees all sins. Every single one. Even our secret sins. Now, secret sins can be transgressions that we try to hide. In other words, we're, we're getting down in our, our little fort, in our dwelling place, and, hello, Brian, are you there? You know, God walking in the cool of the garden, and we try to hide. It can be like that, but they can also be transgressions that we hide from ourselves. They can be hidden from yourself. You might call them blind spot sins. Uh, most of the time, our blind spots are, are willful. I will say this. It's kind of like, you know like when you're driving in the car, and you want to switch lanes, and you quickly glance over at your side mirror, and you see that no one's there, and so you go, and all of a sudden, and you gotta scream back over, and what's your first thought? I hope it's, boy, I was really stupid. I didn't look over my shoulder, but confess along with me. I mean, sometimes isn't it, how dare they honk at me? I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. I checked. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like when we hide our secret sins from us. It's like we're looking at our heart like the side mirror and we're not reading the fine print, which says sins <laughs> are worse than they appear. You catch my drift? Yeah. We justify ourselves that way by looking at our heart, which the Bible says is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we don't see anything right away, and so we think, oh, we're good. We can go ahead and do it. And God's saying, no, no, no. I can see all of what you're doing. I can see that you just quickly checked your heart's mirror and you twitched wings because you didn't feel a twinge of guilt, but you really didn't look very hard. And you really need to look a whole lot harder through the lens of God's word and by pursuing the, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and talking to others who know your sins and love you better than you know yourself. God uses those means to be able to reveal to us our secret sins. God's holy spotlight searches us out and we groan in our last day, recognizing that, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to answer for all those things that I know that I've done. Thirdly, of the laments of human life, life is a tale of toil and trouble. Now, that's, that's kind of an exaggeration, characterizing all human years, because, hey, uh, there's a reason why there's some folks who are glass half empty and other folks who are glass half full, because there's water in the glass, right? Yeah, there are good times in life. We don't deny that. But the fallen human condition may accurately describe um, life as full of toil and trouble. God's wrath toward his unfaithful people, this passage says, is, is in accordance with their fear of God that they should ideally have. In other words, if you don't have very much fear of God, then the toil and trouble that you'll experience, you'll experience it as toil and trouble. But if you fear God... The, the troubles will still come, but the way that you'll process it, the way that you'll think about it, the way that you'll see it through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of grace and mercy and the gospel and Jesus Christ will be completely different. And then it says there, who considers God's anger according to the fear of the Lord? Well, I know we had the kids up here on the first row, and I kept asking them, do you pass the test? Yes, yes, yes. Okay? And we did, I think, because the... the the judgment for passing the test is not perfect. The standard is not 100%. It's that you're sincerely trying and you're trusting in Christ despite your failings, right? But this passage here is asking us, who considers God's anger according to the fear of the Lord? At the end of the day, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's only Jesus, isn't it? And think about what he did. He drank the full cup of God's holy wrath due to us for sin when his years were cut short on the cross. 
the cross of toil and trouble and terror. Only he knew the full power of death. He said it's such a promising life. I mean, he, he grabbed a, a, a ton of followers that were, had hopes of eternal life and the kingdom in him. And they put all of their hopes and dreams into him. And then he was cut off in the prime of his years. What a groan he whispered in his dying breath. Remember? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And those were his last words. Behold the toil and trouble and terrors of life that he endured. And as the only one who did nothing to deserve it for his end of days. Look to him as the Savior. How do you look to him? How is Jesus a help in these times that we might be able to have blessed humility in the kingdom? Well, I can tell you about uh, one particular example that I've seen just in the past week and a half. Uh, We went away as a family to Massanutten last weekend and um, we're out of the house in order to have uh, buyers come in and look at our home as we're trying to to sell it as the first one on the market. And no sooner was I there that I sent an email to a bunch of my friends just kind of updating them on what's happening in our lives because I've got this long list of people to tell and only so much time, right? You get the idea. Well, I got another email back from one of my dearest, closest friends. And he was talking about how his marriage is in shambles. His life is on the rocks. I was in his wedding. What would you do if that was you? Not necessarily him, but, but, but me in that position where you see someone who's experiencing the toil and the troubles and the terrors of life. He was in despair. I've got to be honest. I'll tell you what we did. We cried. We talked. We prayed. And we sought an anchor where we could put down for deep moorings for foundation and security because he's feeling like the storms of life are going to blow him away. Jesus can help you that way. Jesus knows the storms of life. He knows the toils and the troubles and the terrors, and he weathered the storm so that when the flood comes, you will not be swept away. When the fire comes, you will not be burned. And when death comes, it will not consume you. Amen? Okay, now I know you're paying attention. This brings us to uh, our last point of the sermon. What do you do with those laments? What did I do with my friend? Well, we prayed. We didn't pray for um, a miracle by naming it and claiming it, knowing that if we just believe hard enough, then God's going to fix it all and make it better right away. No, I was studying Psalm 90 at the time, so thankfully God had prepared that in my order of sermons. I knew where to turn. When you are in the toils and the troubles and the terrors of life, you can turn to Psalm 92. Psalm 90 also. What we have here are six requests. Six or seven, because the sixth one is repeated. It's doubled up. Six requests for blessed humility. Not one or the other, but both together because you need both together. If you get blessedness without humility, then you'll be tempted to forget God. I don't need him. Life's good. If you get humility without blessedness, you'll be tempted to curse God. So you need them both. Blessed humility. Coupled them together into uh, three pairs. The first one is, God, come and teach us to number our days that we might gain wisdom. If God teaches us to number our days, 
then we will gain, and the word there is literally harvest, we will harvest wisdom. You've cultivated, you've sowed, and there will be a time to reap. Bring in the sheaves, the sheaves of wisdom. The idea there is that we take advantage of our short lives here on earth to cultivate, sow, and reap a Christ-oriented life. That means a life that's resting on Jesus that is your foundation all the way down. Start by fleeing to God's shelter for Christ for forgiveness and blessing in this life and the next. Build all of your hopes, your dreams, and your decisions on that fact that in eternity, Jesus and the gospel are the only things that matter. The only things. All this other stuff that that we're doing here, it won't mean a thing in 100 years. Think about it. Nobody will be around to remember you. But what you do can count forever because he is from everlasting to everlasting. So to wisely number your days, pay attention to God's ways every day because the time is short. So make your days count. Second pairing, how do you pray for blessed humility? You pray something like this. Lord, cancel out my years of affliction. This is a corporate psalm, so we can say it, cancel out our years of affliction with days of gladness from now on. Remember, this is a song, so imagine those singing this psalm, crying out in the dark of night, looking eagerly to light's dawn. In other words, darkness, despair, garden of Gethsemane kind of temptation. But the sun will rise. The hope of salvation and restoration for those who suffer, the Bible says, comes in the morning. And it says this all the time. It's a very familiar image in the Old Testament. When God will show his steadfast covenant love to his people. Ultimately, God answers that prayer. How long? With the resurrection. It's why we have those words printed above the doors as you come in. We preach Christ crucified, the wisdom and power of God. Because he didn't just stay dead, but he rose again from the dead on that third day. And so because of the hope of the resurrection life through faith in Jesus Christ, we can really and truly have a measure of satisfaction in this life. It's not just an empty promise. And it's not just something that, that some people get. There's a, there's a parity here. There's a balance God can replace your years of trouble with years and even more years of good. He promises to restore the years that the locusts have devoured. Remember Job, who lost everything at the book and then at the beginning of the book, and then all through the middle, his three friends are trying to comfort him and just being miserable comforters. And then there's something cosmic that's happening in the background. At the very end, God comes in and says, Okay, you've passed the test, Job. You've, you've proved to me and to, and to the, the Satan, the accuser, that you don't just uh, serve me for things, but you serve me because you love me. And now what does he do? He restores everything and more to Job. And there he lived out his days happily with a balance of gladness to balance out the years of affliction. The third pairing, we can pray something like this. Show us the glory of your work and establish the significance of our work. Think about it. When we lower our eyes from eternity's horizon and we focus just on the here and now, there's really only a couple different options, miserable options, really, for gaining immortality. Immortality. What do people generally do? They put their hopes in their children and they put their hopes in their achievements. 
the work of their hands. Maybe this will establish my significance. Maybe in this I will gain immortality. However, from the perspective of forever, only God can give the glory and significance that we so desperately want to leave behind. Because only God's eternal. Everything else is like a mist. It's a dream. It's grass that grows up and is gone by the end of the day. It's like a flood that sweeps it away. Only God is eternal, so only God is the one who can find the source and the meaning and the purpose for our security and our significance. He must work. In the context of right here and now, so rewind a little bit, Psalm 90 written by Moses, okay? The original audience, the children of Israel in the wilderness, oh my goodness, we're homeless, we're, we're miserable, we're dropping like flies in the wilderness, but only our children will be able to make it into the promised land. Lord, Give your glory, give, your, give your, 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 uh, a glimpse of your work to your children, our children. Okay? Then, Psalm 90, lift it up, put at the very beginning of book four, remember, after the exile, the book of maturation in a sense, spiritual maturity, where God's people say, okay, Psalm 88, Psalm 89, whew, that was tough. I feel devastated. I feel like life's falling apart. But God, the morning did come. Now there is gladness. We really can rejoice. In the here and now, we can pray Psalm 90 as Christians that God would establish our work in the land of the living. God promises from everlasting to everlasting that all women, men and women who are, who are united to the everlasting man, Jesus Christ, will also rise from the dead in resurrection life. We've said it once, we've said it a million times, we'll never get tired of saying it. Through Jesus, who is our dwelling place, our shelter from the wrath of God against sinners, God bestows eternal significance to the deeds wrought by hands that serve him with humility, faithfulness, and prayer. Let's, um, let's close with this. Let, let's, let's get super practical and relevant here, okay? Uh, I wish there were more people here for a day that we're having an important election. Because that's what's before us, Right? When Christians feel like life is lamentable, they can be tempted to either depression, in other words, oh God, I can't believe all of this has happened. I don't know what I'm going to do. Or tempted to delusion. In other words, I'm going to put my hope in this, this security, this person, this place. In other words, for salvation. We're tempted to either depression or delusion. Now, if you're depressed, take heart You're not going to believe what I'm going to say here. Take heart because your days are numbered. You say, huh? Well, that means that if they're numbered and blessing and affliction are on balance, it means that this suffering won't last forever. The joy of the morning will come. And you can trust God and be thankful for it. Believe that God will satisfy you in the morning, particularly in Christ's resurrection morning with the steadfast, covenant, life-giving love that he offers. Now, if you're the kind of person who's like, whew, the future's so bright, i got to wear shades. (laughs) Then I want you to make sure that it's the Lord and not anything else that's your dwelling place, that you're not being delusional by sheltering in anyone or anything else. Lay hold of verses 11 and 12. What do they say? 
Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Seek the Lord's wisdom and be reminded of the costliness of Christ's love for sinners. Learn to number your days according to the harvest of hard-won wisdom that Jesus freely gives to the humble. And if you're somewhere in the middle, which I think probably most of us are, because depending on the mood that you wake up in the morning, you could either be feeling blue or you could be feeling gay, right? These, these, these exhortations apply to all of us, whether you're depressed or you're delusional or somewhere in between. If that's the case, look to the last two verses and pray them. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Father, you've taught us many, many things throughout the years of our, our sojourning through this life. For those of us who have lived just a few years, Lord, if you give us many more days, we have much to learn, and we want to rejoice in the journey. Lord, for those of us who have lived many, many years and have already learned many of these lessons and are tempted to despair as we see the sunset of our years approach, help us to remember, Lord, that you are eternal and that we can rejoice in our numbered days because you can and will establish the work of our hands for all things that are done for Christ and for his glory. And for, Lord, those of us who are uh, anywhere in the middle, uh, who are uh, hard at work in putting our nose to the grindstone, uh, having our, our sights set on the here and now and not on the horizon of eternity as much as we should, we pray, God, that Psalm 90 will be a balm to our souls that you will help us to have kingdom humility, Lord, that we might grow in spiritual maturity as we see that, Lord, you indeed have good things in store for us. So we pray these things with hope and hope in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.